You finally decided to learn how to ice skate, so you ordered the essentials every aspiring ice skater needs. A nice pair of blades, a shiny new helmet, and a good set of knee pads. And you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping, which you put those rewards towards an essential piece of post-skating recovery, a heating pad. Visit bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding to apply now. Copyright 2020, Bank of America Corporation. What's up, Open Fork Globe? This is Ben Golver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod, Pina. Michael, Michael, Michael. What an exciting episode we have today. It's the first one live from the NBA's Orlando bubble. I am checked into my hotel room. I am one man, but I have two beds. Look at me flex. Um, Pretty (laughs) awesome. The cool part is, Michael, that I can't leave for the next 6.5 days. I'm officially in a week-long quarantine. I have approximately 12 bottles of unsweetened iced tea, about seven Perrier's remaining, a bunch of crunchy peanut butter, uh, granola bars, uh, more Clorox wipes than I can even know what to do with. That's pretty much all I've got to my name right now, Michael. I'm struggling down here in Disney World. There are NBA players here. I can see them walk by on the path every once in a while. I just really haven't gotten the chance to do my job yet, if that makes sense. Your existence right now is just it must be such a uh, a strange one to go through. I mean, imagine being in a, I guess, like, technically right now you are imprisoned. for. I, guess, I mean, you could be free to leave, but then the clock would probably restart on you or they'd send you home or something. So you're void human contact, but at the same time, you are able to actually see with your own two eyes NBA players who are in the vicinity and on the same property as you. So that's just very, very strange to think about. Michael, I'm free to leave and free to get tackled by security if I do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, so just for anyone who hasn't been paying attention, obviously, the NBA has descended upon Walt Disney World here this month. The 22 teams are here. Not all their players are here. We're still waiting for a number of notable players as of this taping, including guys like Russell Westbrook, James Harden, and Nikola Jokic. Um, but there are hundreds of NBA players here. They are have uh, gone through their own quarantine process, their own coronavirus testing process. They have started practices and then scrimmages will begin next week in advance of the games um, that will begin on July 30th. So it's all happening. I'll tell you, Michael, it's a big show down here. And the strangest part is just, you know, there's a thousand people in this bubble. And and you and I talked for weeks about how that felt really, really large and potentially, uh, you know, too big to keep safe. And now that I'm down here on the Disney World property, it's amazing that, you know, even a thousand people, which is a large number, is just a fraction of what this kind of a property can hold. I mean, as I was mm-hmm. driving in, it's just like swaths of empty cement parking lots in every direction. You know, I mean, there's so much money being lost by Disney, uh, you know, because of the uh, the coronavirus, uh, you know, pandemic. And I, I believe they've actually reopened parks this week. Um, we'll see what the attendance looks like. I'm sure there's going to be some people who are anxious to get out there. Some people who will be like, nah, somebody else go first. I'll, I'll catch up with you guys later. Uh, but these these hotels are are built to hold thousands and thousands of people. And so the idea of like trying to maintain social distance or just kind of go about your everyday life uh, on this sprawling property, it's actually not that difficult uh, to picture uh, because there's just so much room to work with. So that's uh, one aspect of the reality that kind of set in for me once I actually got here. 
But you said it. It's very strange. I can't tell you all the things they've got me doing, Michael. I'm going to have a, a tracking ring. I'm going to have that proximity alarm that's going to beep if I get too close to Zion Williamson or anybody else important. <laughs> I'm doing a daily health questionnaire where I have to log if I have symptoms. I took my temperature this morning. I've got a pulse meter that tells me you know, what, what my pulse is looking like. I, I provide that information to uh, independent doctors. I mean, the list goes on and on. I tried to work out today, Michael, um, by walking back and forth, pacing in my hotel room. I posted a video to Instagram, and instantly I had an at-home uh, exercise company offering me a free trial to try to upgrade my, my health routines because they felt so bad for me because I looked like a prisoner or a hostage uh, trying to make the most of a bad situation. So, yeah, strange would be the right word. We got a couple questions from the Open Floor Globe. They emailed us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. And these guys were just asking about the bubble experience. Michael, I know talking to you over the last couple of days, you've got some questions for me too, so we'll get into those as well. Let's start with Jacob, though. He says, Ben, the Open Floor Globe wants to know, what did you pack for the bubble? How many pairs of Jordans did you bring? What are you doing for entertainment and snacks? Then he says, after arrival, what do you already wish that you had packed? It's a great series of questions. I'll try to answer them quickly. I packed mostly clothes. I tried to have some uh, dress clothes for the finals. You know, Michael, it's kind of tradition to wear suits at the finals, but also I brought a lot of, you know, dad gear, even though I'm not a dad. I got a bunch of tennis shorts and polo shirts and, you know, stuff that's uh, equipped to handle the 95 degree with humidity Orlando temperatures that we're dealing with. I can brought can about, I break in really quick, Ben? Oh, please. Did you really pack a suit? Oh, I packed three suits. You know, I got to look sharp, Michael. You Come on, man. legend. I know, I know you're going to probably be on television. I was just curious, like, what the vibe was down there. And because I'm trying to imagine actual, you know, how coaches are constantly have to wear suits. And I just can't even imagine that for this particular uh, tournament. And so imagining you as the only person in a suit, even though I know you won't be, just made me laugh a little bit inside. Well Here's the thing. I've got some flexible options, okay? I've got some dress shirts that I could wear with, uh, with you know, less formal pants if I need to. I can go all the way up to suit and tie if I need to. I'm just going to try to read the room before I walk out there in a three-piece, okay? I don't have any three-piece suits. I didn't bring any vests. I left those at home. But, you know, there's a certain uh, aura to the NBA Finals, and everybody kind of gets dressed up. You know, back in Portland, the tradition was everybody gets super dressed up on opening night. Um, I never really got into that one too deeply, um, but, uh, you know, the old school writers were always kind of insistent upon it. Um, but for me, if we make it to October and there's the Finals, I think that is worthy of a suit, don't you think, Michael? Come on now. But No, I, I, personally, I when I attend NBA games, I am easily the best dressed or I should say the fanciest dress of <laughs> all the media members. I'm not going to say the best because that's a little pompous, but I, I do rock uh, suits regularly. So I'm not trying to rag on you too hard. Well, that's good. I guess I over overcorrected <laughs> in defending myself. You're like, thank God for wearing a suit. Uh, it's about time somebody looked good on television. Um, in, in response to Jacob's questions about the shoes, I've got one pair of dress shoes, a couple pairs of Nikes. Uh, I got uh, Jordan 3s, you know, the lows that are just kind of good summer shoes. Got a pair of Air Maxes, bright blue. They're just kind of a nice, you know, summery, light, tropical feel to them. But my um, my grand finale, Michael, is I brought the, the black and red Jordan 11s, you know, the playoff breads. 
and I'm going to break those out if they can make it to the playoffs. If the bubble holds until the first round of the playoffs, that will be my first playoff shoe. What do you think? I love that idea. Uh, I actually had an addendum question for this. How did you pick the sneakers? And and I mean, generally speaking, I, I would imagine having seen you in person several times and you usually have a different pair of shoes on. So I imagine you have a closet just full of sneakers, full of Jordans. Uh, how did you make the like decide who was going to be making the final cut there? Man, it, there's there's no science to it. I'll say that. I also say I haven't bought any sneakers. Basically, I bought one pair of sneakers during the entire quarantine because if you don't have it a place to rock it, Michael, what's the point? You know, I mean, really, like if you can't stunt, if there's nobody to safely stunt on, then what are we even doing? So uh, part of it was I, I went into the, the the crates for unworn shoes. So I had some <laughs> new things to, to break out. I mean, you know how it is at Summer League. Everybody wants to rock the coolest sneakers. Um, so I think that was part of it. But I wanted to have a nice workout walking shoe those are the air maxes i wanted to have Mm -hmm. some low cut shoes in case i was wearing shorts and then the 11s it was just all symbolic you know it was this idea of like please let these playoffs work it's going to be my good luck charm that's kind of how i'm looking at it and we'll see if it uh if it pans out i've got a bunch of books on my ipad jacob in terms of entertainment um I'm watching, you know, various Netflix series. I'm watching Money Heist right now. I'm in season three. Somehow I stuck with it for, for the full first two seasons. Not sure how that worked out for me. Um, on the snack standpoint, it was pretty rough. I've got unsalted nuts and whatever else I could kind of scrounge up at the last minute. Got a bunch of uh, iced teas, Perrier's. But they're doing a nice job of feeding me. Look, the meals aren't the, you know, they're not gourmet, but they're certainly plentiful. Um, I was waiting for a long time for my first one. I did start to wonder, like, was I about to just shrivel? You know, how how dark was it going to get on the first night when they didn't bring the dinner until like 9 p.m.? But I survived. <laughs> this is the things, these are the sacrifices I make for our podcast, Michael. And uh, I think in, in general, like those little details that people are so curious about, what I'm looking forward to is the moment when we transition from those to basketball talk because it's really not that far away and ultimately like what kind of dinner is lebron eating is so much less interesting than who is lebron dunking on and we're just getting closer and closer all right here's another question from jacob michael and i want you to chime in here he says i feel like the players social media accounts are going to be an amazing documentation of life during this experience Whose accounts are you following? Who would you recommend following? And he says, personally, I'm loving Patrick Beverly so far. I'm sure you've seen that account uh, at NBA Bubble Life, Michael, who is just doing a great job of aggregating funny player videos and and pictures from these experiences. But who have been some of your favorite guys to kind of follow so far? And do you have like, uh, you know, kind of a a soulmate or or a guy who's handling this experience like you think you would be? I do have a couple answers to your question, but off the top, is it bad of me to say that I don't really care too much about what the players are living mm. like and what their experience is? Is that controversial? Is that controversial take going against the grain of every NBA basketball fan <laughs> on Twitter. Um, I don't know if it's bad, but you're probably going to need to defend yourself or at least explain yourself, Michael, because I found myself having a really hard time keeping up with it all. But it pretty much all makes me chuckle in part because I can tell that they're dealing with the same kind of concerns that I am. Like, for example, P.J. Tucker brings in that gigantic flat screen television, the Samsung, 
and I was <laughs> and I my first delivery is a little second monitor for my computer. So we're kind of, I mean, look, we're in the same direction, maybe not the same ballpark. I think mine was like less than $100. His was probably $5,000. But um, this idea that we become accustomed to certain technology standards and, uh, you know, we just can't deal without it. I'm right there with them. So, you know, in, in that standpoint, it is kind of appealing to me and, and trying to realize, you know, how they're, uh, you know, grasping uh, with these crazy situations. But why are you just out? Is it just, are you a Grinch or what's wrong with you? No, I mean, well, first of all, speaking of keeping up to certain customary standards, my boy Rondo, uh, just off the top rope from the jump with complaining about the room size, which I just, that's the GOAT uh, Instagram post or Snapchat post. I don't even know where that picture was with the middle finger emoji. He's just an absolute iconic legend. Michael, Um, have you ever stayed at a Motel 6? Just random question. Of course, of course, yeah. How was it? That was not that was not a Motel Six. Let's Thank be clear. You. So uh, yeah, he, slight overreaction by my guy. I don't know if you have any great Motel Six stories, but the last Motel Six I stayed in was, uh, I believe, in Wyoming, coming out of Yellowstone, headed east, and the toilet that my room had, I swear, was like eight inches off the ground. So I don't want to get too graphic and too detailed, but just picture me almost like in a yoga stance trying to use this thing with my knees almost even with my you know temples. Um, I've had a few experiences in Motel 6, I guess I'll say that. Anything that, uh, that jumps to mind for you? Uh, I'm going to keep all my Motel 6 stories private, if that's okay with you. But no, I that's good. <laughs> you're, you're a married man. That's fine. I understand. But I did want to uh, quickly point out, there have been several players who have filmed themselves fishing uh, since they've gotten down there. And I, I'm personally not a fisherman. I don't. I've gone maybe once in my whole life, and it was a total disaster. But... I thought it was pretty comedic just because, like, I'm wondering how much bass is actually in this water. I mean, there's the phrase, like, shooting fish in a barrel. And that's basically what I imagine this fishing experiment to be with these players, where they're just catching the biggest bass imaginable. Like, are there any players who are striking out, who are failing, or is it like a can't-lose proposition that completely, completely defeats the purpose of fishing? Well, you've heard of stocking a lake, right? Where they bring in extra fish so that you can catch everything. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's that's probably what that's happened. Clearly, what's going on? Yeah, there's a lake, and I think, believe there are signs up around the lake that says "Watch out for alligators." And so, my understanding is that Disney has removed all of the alligators and maybe brought in bass in their place to kind of make it a a more M- NBA friendly environment. Who knows? Um, final question here from Jacob on the bubble. He says. I saw that players are allowed to wear social justice statements on their jerseys. Some players have come out and expressed disappointment about the options. How do you guys feel about this? So I believe uh, Jalen Brown said he was disappointed in the options, probably because there was nothing about police brutality. LeBron said it just really wasn't in line with his own personal view of his mission. Uh, he, he wasn't consulted on the on the slogan, so he decided not to choose one. Anthony Davis and LeBron will both just wear their their normal names on their jerseys. Uh, Giannis said today, I believe he's going to wear equality uh, on the back of his. And it does sound like a majority of NBA players are going to have the, um, you know, the, some sort of a, a social justice message, you know, on their jersey. I think Chris Middleton with the Bucks said Black Lives Matter would be his. Um, where do you come down 
Michael, I mean, some people have said, oh, this is just an empty gesture. Oh, it doesn't really matter. Good for the players for not going along with it. If these messages were kind of negotiated with the league and they had to kind of be approved in one way or another, um, are you pro-message? Are you anti-message? Does none of it matter? And what do you think about the players who are kind of uh, squawking about that? It's a little better to complain about that than it is uh, the Motel 6 accommodations, right? Yeah, a little bit. Uh, I mean... I have a few thoughts about this. Generally speaking, I I do like that the league is uh, auctioning off these jerseys when they're worn. The opening night jerseys with the social justice statements on the back will be auctioned off to support a, a player-administered social justice fund, according to uh, ESPN. Uh, and I guess that's that's good. I don't know exactly what that means, but it sounds good. And I'm sure that that money will go to a really good place at the end of the day. Uh, that said, like, I, again, just, I think I said this before in an earlier episode, I just don't know what is necessarily accomplished by putting the word equality on the back of a jersey or even putting Black Lives Matter on the back of a jersey. And to the players who wanted to put something on the back of their jersey that the league or it wasn't available, such as Marcus Smart wanted to put I Matter on the back of his jersey. And apparently that is just not something that could get done as far as uh, last I checked. Uh, and so, I, I mean, I, I, the empty gesture thing, yeah, I, I kind of agree with that. And at the end of the day, uh, you know, I've been in the camp that they should not be playing at all. And I still am there. Uh, and, you know, I, I also just think like when someone as powerful and as influential as LeBron chooses not to, and I'm not at all criticizing LeBron for that decision, but when he says that essentially, I mean, his reasoning, he didn't really give a reason. He basically just said, that, you know, I don't, his quote was, I don't need to have something on the back of my jersey for people to understand my mission or know what I'm about and what I'm here to do, which is completely fair. I just think that when you're LeBron, like it just kind of defeats the purpose of the whole exercise if the most famous player is not going along with it. But that kind of just tells you how dumb this thing is. <laughs> I'm so, like, I just, it goes back to your, who, like, I understand the platform. I understand wanting to do right. But at the end of the day, I don't know who watching the NBA is not aware of the Black Lives Matter movement. I, I just, I, I, I just struggle with how effective any of this actually is. And one more point, if you're a player who does not want to put I guess you get a little bit of cover with AD and LeBron, but if you're, say, a white player or an international player who doesn't want to put uh, any message, any social justice statement on the back of your jersey, and you get teammates looking at you sideways, is that fair to that player? I mean, it's just, it's a, it's, like, I don't know. It just no, seems I, really dumb to me. I hear what you mean. I think that would be more of like an internal dilemma for those players. Like, am I going to offend my teammates? I really cannot imagine a player, like, going up to like Maxi Kleber and being like, bro, you're really not going to stand with us with your Jersey <laughs> message. Like that conversation is just not happening. Right. Um, now if there was an entire team that wanted to do with the same message and some guy backed out of that, that could you know be a legitimate conversation. But I do think that we're spending a little bit too much uh, time, not you and I, but just the general discourse um, on these messages. 
It's interesting because LeBron loves the slogan, you know, more than a game, more than a vote, kid from Akron. I mean, he's really been good about the slogans and, and from their marketing standpoint and f- from a branding standpoint throughout his career, the chosen one. I mean, he's got that tattooed on his can, body. <laughs> ben, can I ask you something? Of course. I'm going to put on my tin hat. Do you think LeBron is taking a stand against the NBA for not allowing him to put more than an ath- more than an athlete on the back of his jersey? Wow, that's interesting. I was I was kind of going to get a similar direction where clearly it's a very personal choice with these slogans and so if you don't really have a slogan that resonates with you and you're going to be wearing it on your uh, your jersey. I mean numbers are important, right? I remember in high school mm-hmm. how important it was to have a number that you liked. If the message doesn't feel quite right or there was one that you wanted and now they're saying it's not available to you or if you're LeBron and you had a specific one, maybe it's your, um, you know, one of your campaigns that you want to wear and for some reason it didn't get approved. Yeah, of course, you're not going to go, oh, yeah, I'll just take like a second place option or I'll just settle for this one. Like you're never going to you know, participate in that. And by the way, like these guys are famous because of their names. You know, that's that's part of it, too. Like they're very well known. Uh, their names are their own commodities in, in, in a way. And so I can understand why they would uh, feel comfortable kind of defaulting to that. I think other guys are superstitious too. You know, I would I would really think twice about putting anything different on my jersey heading into a playoff game. Remember when, you know, uh, in, in the last dance, Jordan had his shorts on backwards or then midway through the series against Orlando, he wants to change from number 45 to number 23. Like mm-hmm. that athlete psychology part's a real deal. And even if your heart's in the right place with these messaging, and of course every player's heart would be if they were wearing that, I could also just, you know, feel the athletic instincts you know, taking over. You start out 0 for 7 in Orlando. You're like, get this thing off of me. Give me a jersey with my name on it, you know? So, um, you know, I think uh, I I certainly don't hold it against any player who didn't want to put a message. I don't think the, the general public should be demanding or expecting that these players uh, wear a message um, that they wouldn't otherwise normally do. I agree, but there's just all these false controversies that are, that emerge through situations like this. Like, for example, when play when the national anthem is first played and we see who is taking a knee and who isn't, that will be a divisive topic of conversation just because of the country and the the environment that we live in right now. And it is dumb. I agree with you, but it's going to happen, Ben. Like, that's just what it is. And players who stand for the national anthem are going to be are going to have to explain themselves, particularly the white ones. For sure. That one is unavoidable. I would almost put that in its own category because you have five years of baggage about that decision and Mm -hmm. the, the politicization of that action kind of on display um, a lot of the messages with the NBA that guys are going to be wearing are like pretty anodyne, you know, uh, mm-hmm. equality. It's like, is this a dollar bill or a jersey? Like, what are we doing here? <laughs> uh, so anyway, there, there's obviously other ones that are more direct and more forceful um, that could potentially inspire backlash. Like I could see guys walking out there with Black Lives Matter jerseys getting, you know, targeted by trolls on the Internet. That could certainly happen. I hope it doesn't. Uh, because I think their hearts and their heads are in the right place, even if the execution here maybe left a little bit something to be desired. All right, Michael, I want to know a little bit more about the guys who you you have been following. I know you said you're checking out a little bit. Um, do you have an MVP? Do you have that soulmate? Do you have a guy who is just killing you with his social media behavior, bothering you with what he's <laughs> tweeting out there? Like, give me some of your superlatives. So 
JJ Reddick uh, shotgunned a Bud Light in a kiddie pool, and that was just something that ten years ago I would probably. I mean, I would. He would be my all-time favorite player. That is something I could very much relate to. So, shout out to JJ Reddick. I thought that was very comical. Um, his teammate Josh Hart. I think his complaining about golf uh, and. I can't remember where I saw this. I tried to bring it back up when I was going over the outline, Ben, but I believe I saw a photo of Josh Hart in a golf cart drinking champagne. I don't 100%. I might be making that up, but I'm pretty sure that that was on Snapchat or Instagram somewhere. I tried to find it, couldn't. But that, even if that is not true, I apologize, but drinking champagne from the bottle on a golf cart is my idea of heaven. So Josh Hart is easily the MVP for me. My, oh, my, oh, my. Well, first of all, um, you have a drinking problem, Michael? Your two favorite guys down here just <laughs> going to town? I, what do you, Quar- you, you want to talk this thing Quarantine's been out? very rough. Yeah, quarantine's yeah, look, been tough. Hey, look, no one's listening, Michael. You, you can open up and be honest. No, um, <laughs> uh, I, I think my favorite guy actually was John Morant, and this is a much more boring answer, but like, you know, he it was getting into this idea of, Oh, this motel, six accommodations. My room is so small. I can't believe this. And everyone was kind of complaining about the food. And John Morant was like, the hotel is fine. The the room is fine. The food is fine. I'm not a silver spoon type of guy. I love that, man. Because, you know, I, that's just one thing in my daily life. And this is, a, you know, got a little bit of a sidebar. But I just think it's so important to never get satisfied. You know, you could be happy all you want, but just don't get satisfied. Don't Don't get fat and happy. Um, I, I think that, you know, it's just counterproductive to being a, a functional employee, to being, a, you know, a, a positive mentality. Like if you start to settle, if you start to expect a certain thing you know, for anyone in life at any stage of their life, it will have uh, really, you know, counterproductive uh, impacts on what you're trying to do and who you're trying to be as a person. So I just love John Moran. And of course, he's not in the same, you know, wealth stratosphere as a lot of his colleagues who are here, you know, guys who have made a hundred million, hundred, two hundred million dollars over the course of their careers. I mean, he's still on his rookie contract in, in year one, mm-hmm. but for him to be like, yeah, you know, bring me the uh, uncooked chicken breast. I'll eat it. I don't care. Let's go play basketball. Like I love that mentality. Uh, and it was refreshing. If I had one you know, basketball soulmate here in Orlando, it would be him. Can we rename, or I guess initially name this episode, uh, Don't Get Fat and Happy? Oh, of Just course. completely out of context? Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, if you're going to be shotgunning Bud Lights, we got a problem, though. It's, these are these are conflicting messages, Michael. Um, we got a question from Luke. He's in Germany. He writes, Hey, Ben, when you heard about getting into the bubble, did you know who the other media members were? What well, what will the contact to the other media members be like? I assume that you're all at the same hotel. Are you able to uh, get together for uh, for dinner, for example, or do you have to limit contact inside the bubble? Great questions, Luke. It was a long waiting game. The NBA really didn't tip its hand much about who was going to get in. We were all sort of playing the guessing game uh, of which outlets would be able to afford to send people. I don't want to put the the exact price figure out there. You could probably find it by googling it, but. It's tens of thousands of dollars to have someone within the bubble. That covers the hotel room for 94 nights. That covers regular testing. I'm being tested for coronavirus every single day down here. Um, that covers three meals a day. It covers transportation to and from the games and you know various other you know health programs that they've got going on down here. And the state of American media is such, Luke, that 
there aren't very many outlets here that have that type of budget to put up for uh, for basketball. It's just uh, a fact. So we understood there was going to be a lot of people from ESPN and, and Turner as their uh, broadcast partners. But in terms of independent media, you know, I knew the New York Times would be in the mix. I knew the LA Times would be in the mix. I suspected the Boston Globe would be in the mix, Sports Illustrated. Uh, you know, there's a few other outlets that we, we all kind of knew would have a shot. But, you know, ultimately, we didn't find out that we would be in the bubble until there was a, a week before I had to fly down here. So I basically had seven days of notice. And, Michael, I actually didn't get medically cleared until less than 24 hours before I had to get on the flight. So last week was very, very nerve wracking trying to, uh, you know, cross the T's and dot the I's to even get into a situation where they would let me in. So um, there, there really wasn't much uh, warning there. In terms of contact within the bubble, you know, it's all about social distance. Uh, once we're allowed out of our quarantine, which will continue for about six more days, we'll be free to, you know, kind of linger and associate with the other media members. We're supposed to say so socially distance at the games. We're going to be sitting about 10 to 15 feet from the court, but we're going to be spaced out around the gym. Uh, we're going to be having assigned seats, so you can't just like hop up and go over and talk to somebody. They've encouraged us even to text each other when we're at the gyms rather than talking because it's just easier and lower risk, which is uh, you know kind of funny to think about, but you, know, you can understand their position on that. That's and, really smart. Yeah. Well, everybody texts all the time anyway, so it's not that different. Personally, I love it, Michael. Trying to maintain uh, eye contact during a conversation is difficult, bro. It's just exhausting. <laughs> just stare at your phone and, and uh, text away. And then in terms of the meals aspect, Luke, um, they're encouraging you know people, if possible, you eat your meals uh, together outside and stay socially distanced. But if you are inside, you know, just spread out. And that's sort of the uh, the plan. I imagine we're going to get into much more of that stuff next week once we're out of the hotel rooms. For right now, we're basically all in the same hotel complex, uh, almost directly across the street from the, the main player's hotel, which is the Grand Destino Tower. That's where the Lakers are staying, the Clippers are staying. I can almost see their hotel from my room, Michael, not quite. Um, but uh, that just gives people a sense. I could walk over there if I wasn't, you know, barricaded in my room. I could walk over to where the Lakers are staying in about five minutes. All so, so real quick, so that's that's Jason Tatum's hotel, right? Oh, are they in this thing too? I heard that they made it. Oh. I heard they did. Oh, yeah, they did bring 22 teams. That's right. In <laughs> uh, just under the cut. Hey, is Kemba hurt already? Did I read that today? We can move on. Um, I have. <laughs> is there okay? Is it okay if I ask you a couple quick questions, Ben? I don't know oh, where please. you were about to lead us. I know you like to, you know, drive the steer the conversation no, where we no. go. But Michael, as the famous movie line goes, you're the captain now, brother. Take over. You're, you're at the wheel. Let's do it. So you mentioned the one of the things that you get. Uh, that you're paying for when you're down there is testing. And going back to when I relayed my incredibly humbling, embarrassing story about my own experience getting tested, I'm curious if you have gotten tested yet because we have not had this discussion on or off the air. So I got tested last night. Mm -hmm. um, and, and here's how they did it. They knocked on the door at about 9.30 p.m. There was an NBA uh, official who is sort of coordinating the health program. And there was two employees from a private health company that were going to actually administer the test. They gave me uh, about a five-minute explanation of what they were doing. They asked for my driver's license to confirm my identity and other basics. 
Um, mm-hmm. The testing company is called Bioreference Laboratories. Um, and I asked them, well, what kind of tests are we doing exactly? So they wanted a saliva test. And then they wanted to do what they're calling a shallow nasal test, where they basically just kind of, they're wow. sort of like picking boogers uh, in my nose, but they're not doing this, this super deep nasal test that I believe is the one that you got. So uh, he proceeded to administer the test. Uh, the, uh-huh. the, the saliva swab was no big deal. Slight discomfort on the nasal. And when it was over, I well, first of all, I had asked them if I could film all of this. And for some reason, they didn't have clearance to do it because I wanted to film my nasal test and like pretend that it was really painful so that I could like, you know, <laughs> post it to the Internet and be like, Michael Pina's not a wimp, everybody. You guys gave him too much crap for a month. Like, it's really painful. Um, and when it was over, I was like, are you serious? Like, that's it? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, so that's not the one that like makes people cry. And I kid you not, Michael, the NBA official said, oh, no. I took the deep nasal swab test and it brought me to tears. So you're not alone, Michael. There's at least one other person in the world that had the same horrible <laughs> testing experience as you. Unfortunately, it wasn't for me. You know, it, it wasn't me who can, who can uh, empathize with you, but I found mm-hmm. one other person who absolutely can. But here's the crazy part. I got my test results back within fi- uh, 15 hours. So they were, I think they're able to use the combination of those two tests simultaneously, perhaps mm-hmm. to prevent against a false positive or a false negative, you know, because you can kind of compare them. Um, I will be undergoing another test tonight uh, and they just, you know, upload the results to a website. I can log in every morning and, and check uh, how I'm doing. So, so far, so good. Um, so fresh and so clean, Michael. What can I say? Beautiful. That makes me feel a lot better, though. That someone, a do, a do, this is a medical professional. Is that okay to say that that's, that's what the person, that's, I'm labeling the person as a medical professional who. An, an MBA medical professional for sure. Okay. I mean, he was younger. I don't know if he's technically a doctor. We can call him a doctor. Why not? Sure. Um, but yeah, you're in, you're in great esteemed company. And I was like, yeah, man, I heard from this guy I know. He said he was like doubled over in pain. It was worse than childbirth. <laughs> I was laying it on pretty thick. Um, but you know, I was trying to build rapport so that they would let me film it. Cause I thought it would be great content. Um, it didn't work. They shot me down. After the trip, I drove my van back with all my equipment. I could hear a little bit of whimpering and crying. When Eldon Kidd, a father of five running rafting tours through Mexico, found two Guatemalan girls stowed away in the back of his tour van one night, it changed his life forever. They pleaded with me, can you bring us to the border? I agreed. And I thought, can I do this again somehow? From the team behind American Skyjacker comes an epic new crime series, American Coyote. Being a coyote is a dangerous and illegal business. You have to be prepared for the worst. The unbelievable tale of a legendary coyote named Eldon Kidd, American Coyote. Listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. You decided it was time to upgrade your outdoor deck, so you got all the essentials to do it. You ordered a power washer, a set of patio chairs, and a shiny new grill. And you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping and up to 5.25% as a preferred rewards member, which you put towards your most essential deck addition. A bird feeder. Apply for yours at bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding.
Copyright 2020, Bank of America Corporation. Okay, so uh, building from there, I have a slightly more serious question that I wanted to ask you, Ben. Right, so and... more, more serious than <laughs> booger picking is basically where we're trying to go, because that's what it felt like. It just felt like someone stuck their finger in my nose, you know? Yeah, well, that's not what I experienced at all. But uh, neither here nor there. Um, I would be uh, derelict my duty as your co-host, co-host not to ask... Uh, a pretty, I, I think, a pretty serious ethical question that's been in the news for a few weeks now uh, regarding just w- how you feel about getting tested so frequently and receiving results in as short as 12 hours, I believe, is what I read. You said you, you get your results back in 15. Um, but to do that in an area where tests are increasingly scarce and results in the community where you are are getting delayed by a system that's clearly overwhelmed. So obviously, I'm not trying to make you feel like you're a terrible human being because you're not. But what are you? Are you, do you have some kind of moral dilemma or consciousness about the situation that you're being pushed, put in? It is a great question. It's a serious ethical question for every single person who's here and for the league itself. I will say this: um, before arriving in Orlando, I never. Uh, pursued a COVID test for any reason, in part because I didn't want to uh, strain the system uh, in any way. Now, I did get a physical a couple weeks ago, and at that point, they were able to do an antibody test for me as part of my just general lab work. So that one came back negative, and that was kind of nice to know, I guess, that I hadn't randomly had the disease and not known Mm -hmm. about it. Um, But uh, yeah, especially when there was a, a real testing crunch early, uh, the idea of trying to go seek out a test, you know, that that was, um, you know, kind of something that I was not interested in doing at all. You know, bottom line, I'm not able, I'm weighing multiple obligations because my I have a professional obligation to my employer to do my job and just my own personal obligation of like how I view myself as an employee and as a person, frankly. I mean, you know, trying to cover the NBA is very deeply embedded in who I am. And this is one of the things that I have to do to do th- that job. And so, uh, you know, it, it, it was a real tough decision. It's like, all right, well, are you going to stand on principle and just say, look, I'm not, you know, basically I'm going on strike almost, um, you know, to uh, protest against this situation. Um, I wasn't necessarily ready to do that. Now, I do think it's important to point out this is a private system that these guys have set up. So the NBA is paying for all these tests. I'm paying for these tests. They're being administered without any real use of public funds, to my knowledge, or public resources. Um, and they're using a lot of tests, obviously, you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. I think one major takeaway I have from this um, NBA bubble experience so far is that top-down planning really matters a lot. Right. If you want to accomplish a goal like testing everybody within a bubble and you have the resources to do it, you're able to do it. It's really not, you know, like the the logistics and the, and the complexities of that process are not that crazy. Now, is it a lot more difficult to test 300 million Americans uh, regularly than it would be a thousand people in a bubble? Absolutely. Would it be more expensive? Absolutely. Are we confident? as a country that we had the top-down leadership and the federal leadership necessary to accomplish those types of goals. Um, I'm not confident in that at all. And so I think one of my takeaways, and you know, I certainly don't mean to be dismissive of people who can't get the tests that are, uh, that, that are needing them even today, all these months later, but there's one group that you can blame for that. 
and it's not the NBA. The, the group to blame and all the responsibility on uh, testing availability and everything else goes to the federal government and it goes to the state governments, right? Um, those are the people who ultimately need to be overseeing the administer uh, the administering of these kinds of tests. And you know, it's a public health crisis, the worst that we've seen in our lifetimes. And the fact that we haven't solved the testing question after all of these months when so many other countries have solved it and so many private companies are now proving that they can solve it too, it's just inexcusable. There's, there's no other way around it. You know, we are not doing our job as a country um, to that level. And, and the, the NBA's ethical dilemma became, well, do we go along with that ride? Do we just decide, you know what, the government doesn't have it together, so... We can't do anything um, indefinitely. How long could that last? You know, three years. I mean, how long would it take for them to really figure this thing out? Who knows? Um, and I think ultimately they decided to be more proactive and to do it without impacting local health resources. And um, you know, I think that you know, to me, I'd be okay with that. I would, I'd be okay with that ethical decision if I were their leadership, um, just because I would be aghast at the alternative options presented by the government. That was really well said. I will say just, I think a question that I have, I, I think that it's a little bit of a separate conversation between the, the lack of leadership in the federal government and the state government in Florida and the tests that the NBA has available that are private that they have paid for regardless because there's a, a, a community of hundreds of thousands who are not able to get results and tests in a timely manner. But I will say from the NBA's perspective, which you, you do paint a good kind of a, a good picture there, um, optically, how do you think it just looks regardless of uh, the reality that they are in a situation where they feel the need to put on this event and to do it, they will need to test frequently uh, to make sure that everyone inside the bubble is as safe as possible. Do you think that optically that is something that is really damaging to the league or just something that people will overlook when uh, games are actually being played? It's a good question. I would say that the optics to me were a lot worse in March when the tests were basically impossible to get and the NBA mm -hmm. is using like 40 of them from the Oklahoma Department of Health, you know, to try to, you know, decide or discover what happened with Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell and all those players in that gym. I right. think that that decision is a lot shakier because at that point in Oklahoma, and I wrote a story about this, there were people, including uh, emergency responders who were reporting every COVID symptom and were having to jump through hoops to get approvals to try to even just get tested and then waiting for so long to get their... Um, their test results that they were dying, right? They were never even getting treatment. I think at that point, it was a much worse optical situation. I think at this point, the frustration for a lot of people around the country about the response has just set in. And I think anyone who is, um, you know, operating in that space is going to catch secondary frustration. I saw a lot of complaints about it, you know, in the lead up uh, to the time here in the bubble. Um, mm -hmm. But I would just always encourage people, if you're mad, Try to trace it back to the real source of the anger. Who is making the decisions? Who is setting the policies? Um, who is you know taking the steps or not taking the steps to fix the situation that's upsetting you? And I think in this case, um, you know, again, if they were using you know public tests, 
Um, or if, you know, they were kind of cutting in line, you know, like, like the conversation was back in March, I think it would be a little bit different. That's just not how I see this, uh, this current situation. I mean, uh, the testing thing should have been solved, you know, and, and so many other countries have been able to do it. And, you know, the companies in those countries are going about their business just fine now, in part because the governments there stepped up to the plate. And so, you know, I think that, you know, we're learning that maybe our public trust uh, in our institutions uh, was a little bit uh, overstated here in recent years, right? We took some things for <laughs> granted that maybe we shouldn't have. Yes. And that's, uh, you know, very frustrating and very sad. But I don't blame Adam Silver for that. I, there's other people who are pretty obvious, uh, you know, candidates for, for blaming that situation. And I do think, you know, potentially with this election coming up in November, it will offer us a fascinating side-by-side -side, uh, case study because we could all play the mental games of like, hey, if 2016 had gone differently, how would the last six months have played out? This is still going to be a public health crisis in November, right? Or when there's the official uh, transition of power in January, mm -hmm. um, if there is one, uh, nobody wants to get uh, you know too far ahead of themselves, right? But that's going to be a real stark opportunity for the if there is a new administration for them to put their fingerprints all over this thing. And I imagine they would be doing things a lot differently than have been done here over the last few months. And I think that that could lead to a whole uh, round of new frustrations, given how much time and how much suffering and how many lives have been lost here. But I think it also could give people, you know, something to look forward to, hopefully, this idea of, uh, you know, a return to normalcy from a policy standpoint. Uh, we could see that in January. Um, and um, I view the NBA's role in this testing question as an example of kind of functional, logical, process-oriented leadership which is exactly what we've all been looking for here since February or March. I'm glad that we at least covered it. It's not an easy or uncomplicated uh, topic of discussion. And Well, let me ask you this. Do you think that sure. we should call on the NBA to like do a testing offset, for example, you know, like carbon offsets? Like I'll say I get really guilty when I fly around the world covering games constantly. So I've done the carbon offset thing before and people make fun of that because it's this idea, oh, it's just, you know, that, that liberal guilt complex. Here you are going to pay your way out of a problem. But at some point it's like, well, yeah, there are a few more trees out there because I decided to donate some money. So it's better than nothing. Um, should the NBA be doing like a testing offset where it's like if they're going to use 20,000 tests in here in the bubble, should they be buying 20,000 tests to give to a local hospital? I mean, would, would that uh, maybe help solve what you're, what you're talking about? Or do you think that that's a, an empty gesture? No, I, I don't think that would be an empty gesture. I don't know how practical it would be to implement something like that, though. Uh, so that could be a little little tricky, but that is the right idea, I would say. And when you have an organization that is private, that is more competent and capable than the local government and local government officials, it's not their responsibility to step in, but it would be nice to see. Maybe I'm naive in saying and thinking that, but that's just kind of my view on it. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, it's tough. Um, I think that I would have less sympathy for the NBA if they had some alternative revenue stream opportunity. I think that the NBA has done a pretty good job of not crying poor, you know, throughout this time period. We've seen a few examples, you know, uh, Tillman Fertitta going to Trump and, and begging for the PPP funds. 
Um, I think Adam Silver made one comment in a in a press call about how their revenues were basically at zero. But like this is sink or swim time for an organization like the NBA. I mean, this is massive, massive financial losses. I mean, this it's I they were desperate when they put together this bubble. This wasn't just a lark, right? Um, they were facing serious economic questions and hardship. And to tell you know businesses like sorry, you know tough break. Um, you know, you have to stoop to the level of the worst government's response uh, in your response. To me, that's ethically challenging as well. Sure. Can we talk about basketball or do we have another a, a semi-basketball related question to go over now? Because I'm getting a little down in the dumps. Well, Michael, I hate to break it to you, bro, but you were the captain now, bud. <laughs> You're the one who brought up these uh, these complicated questions. I'm just trying to answer them, okay? Uh, yeah. We do have some other questions that we can uh, hop into real quick. Here's one from Morgan. He says, as always, I love the pod and capital letters, the pod, Michael Pina. He writes, over under, how many times do you think the announcers will mention Rudy Gobert and the coronavirus during the Jazz telecast? Additionally, how many times do you think that they will caveat that statement by saying there is no way to know if he actually got it from another player rather than sort of being the first player who tested positive? It seems like Gobert has done a lot to redeem himself, and it would be unfair to continually harp on him rather than the other players. What do you think? Michael, I want to reframe this one slightly. How much, if at all, do you think the broadcast should be talking about the coronavirus, or should they just sort of be broadcasting through it? You know that old idea on Twitter of just tweet through it? Um, (laughs) Yeah, that goes well for everybody who does that, yeah. Right, but it's, it's a real strategy. Should, I mean, should the NBA sort of just like, you know, maybe the first broadcast, hey, we're all down here in Orlando, it's kind of weird, and then from there just drop it? Or like, what would be your content strategy if, if you were the head of the network? And keep in mind, like, you, you're you facing advertising questions, you're facing questions from your talent. I mean, you've got a lot of things to juggle if you're in that role. I feel like if you straight up ignore COVID down there, uh, it would have a very state TV vibe, and that's really not what you want. So, well, Michael, with... again, I am trapped in my hotel room as an independent <laughs> journalist. So let's just put that out there. I mean, we're sure. we're kind of in that territory, aren't we? I mean, a little v- bit. Very fair. Very fair. Um, I think with just go bear. I think honestly, it'll be very difficult for announcers not to associate him with being the most notable, the first and most notable name to test positive. And, you know, that set off the shut. I mean, I don't even think necessarily that it's a bad or a good thing. I don't look at it that way. I look at it as he tested positive and that is what kicked off the shutdown of the NBA season. That is what I think brought the disease to the fore in a lot of different cultural areas that we walk. I mean, like Broadway was not shut down before Rudy Go- just like a lot of different things that his positive test saved a lot of lives, which is really sad to say, going back to the lack of leadership in the federal government. But I do think that every time he dunks, every time he commits a travel or an offensive foul or he blocks a shot, Something will be said eventually in the aftermath of that event. And that's not fair to him, but I just think it's going to be very difficult to avoid. I think it's going to be a leading storyline for that first week. And I do think it will dissipate, you know, at some point. You do. uh, Well, 
at least on the TV broadcast, because at some point you feel like you're just harping on it, you know? And like, I know for our podcast, like we've talked about Rudy in that manner for months because we've had to, and like it, it was a, a huge turning point event. I think this is going to stick with him through his entire career, right? If we're saying, okay, like what's the first line of the obituary? Like, I think that is in the conversation, right? Um, for sure. But I'm saying day-to-day mechanically on the broadcast, like Donovan Mitchell to Rudy Gobert for the alley oop. Wow, look and at that by connection. The way. <laughs> like you, you can't you can't bring that up. You know, it's just it's weird in that moment. Yeah, no, I it is weird. And when you say it like that, you're probably right. But I do think it's just like not mentioning COVID for you know in that first week, let's say when there's five games in a row, if no announcers mention it. Uh, I just think that that would be really strange and almost like borderline offensive given. Yeah, no, that would be unacceptable. No, I'm with yeah. you on that. And I think that they will, but I think it will dissipate quickly. I think there's going to feel like an obligation to set the terms. Once people are watching the games, they get into it. If you're like tripling back and it's like, hey, everyone, welcome to an empty gym because 130,000 <laughs> people are dead across yeah. the country, right? Like, they're not yeah, going to use tough. that tone. Yeah. But you know what I mean? It's just, it's an impossible situation to be in. And ultimately, like, you do want the sporting events to take center stage as soon as it's appropriate. You don't want to rush it, but you also don't want to slow play it. And so I think it's going to play out, uh, you know, relatively naturally. But if we're two weeks into this thing and there's no positive tests and things are kind of going along properly, I think that the conversations are going to be sticking to basketball and then getting into that goofy stuff, which you clearly hate, uh, you know, all that social media content. I think you're going to see a lot of that. Um, on the broadcast oh, of like who yeah. went fishing, right? Who's the best at bocce? <laughs> Hard like, pass. Yeah. What did JJ Reddick hit on the golf course last night? I think we're going to get a lot of that stuff. Hey, Michael, I wanted to um, do a quick follow up here on a conversation we had on the last episode. You'll remember we got the question from Montreal about whether NBA commentators should use the word stud. And we talked uh, at some length about how that was a dehumanizing term. Uh, because of the you know, the implications with you know a, a horse stud and everything along those lines, we got a bunch of follow up questions from all sorts of different listeners who wanted to point out that there were other layers um, you know to that term that really make a pretty strong case when you add them all up that we should just kind of dump this word from our lexicon if at all possible and just not use it. You know, we don't need to call a LeBron or a Zion a a stud because those guys can jump out of the gym or uh, because they're, you know, 360 dunking and and chase down blocking and all that kind of stuff. So here's here's a sampling of what people sent in. John wrote, Stud is indeed a horse reference, which is bad enough, but it's not referencing a strong horse in particular though they often wore that too. It's a breeding reference. It's a horse that is so strong or fast that you want it impregnating females in expectation of similar offspring. Thus, when a great thoroughbred horse retires, he is put out to stud. It only gets worse from there. If you do a search of slave stud and you can go down that horrifying rabbit hole on your own, I don't want to cover it here, but I think you're getting the idea that using stud in a league like the NBA is not great. I'm not one of the folks that wants to ban every word that we can possibly find offensive, and I'm not even necessarily trying to ban this one, but I won't use it, and it's worth considering if you want to or not. Michael, uh, not you, uh, follows up and says, 
even more than that, in the 19th century, after the United States banned the importation of slaves, many white slave owners became obsessed with breeding human property. Since they couldn't pay people to kidnap Africans, they had to bring their own. They looked for stockmen or studs to impregnate female slaves and preserve good genes. If you look at advertisements for slaves from the period, many boast of breeding ability. Stud is a word tied to breeding uh, to carry on good genes, and it's tied to slavery specifically. Even in the notion of the horse stud, it still carries a racist implication of hypersexual black men. When tied to the slavery implications, it's extremely troubling, and I believe dehumanizing. And then Tom from Australia writes, I was glad to hear from the listener who doesn't like the term stud. That term has always made me feel uncomfortable. I thought I was the only one and that I was being overly sensitive. I'm a white guy from Australia, so I don't want to speak on behalf of anyone here, but it just reminded me of how Olden Polonese said on Ramona Shelburne's Donald Sterling podcast that he recoiled when Sterling called him a buck. So uh, very thoughtful emails from a lot of people. I wanted to apologize. I mean, I remember those connotations and I just blanked on them. Um, when we had that conversation, I never raised that point on the last podcast. And to see the flood of emails from people, clearly it's a, a widespread, uh, widespread and well-known thing. Um, and so, uh, you know, apologies for not including that the first time around. I think we would have had a shorter conversation uh, last episode, Michael, if we had, uh, you know, maybe included that aspect to it. And we would have just reached the conclusion like, hey, you know, kind of studs got to go, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, and yeah, I mean, we we covered a lot of it in our the last episode. And I, I mean, I probably will not be going out of my way to say the word stud from this point forward, just because it seems like it could possibly be offensive. And personally, I, I don't really like to use words that might even offend other people. Sue me. Um, but yeah, so that's it's good that this has been brought to the fore. I hear you, man. And, and the main reason why I wanted to bring this one up today is because there's kind of a historic thing going on right now with the Washington football team. You know, for years and years, decades, people have been trying to get them to change the name of their team. It sounds like they're finally ready to retire what a lot of people viewed as a racist name. And some people tried to push back and say, oh, no, it's not. It has its own heritage and everything else. Mm. I, I think that this conversation about words uh, you know, and I know you're a wordsmith, Michael, it's picking up, man. Like there's some real serious, you know, speed and momentum to this thing that just has never been there before during our lifetime. I mean, hearing from some people at the Washington Post sports desk, they are slack-jawed, man. They cannot believe that the team is actually going to change its name. If you go back not even a, a few years, the owner is saying, we will never change the name, period. Never, like capital N-E-V-E-R. Mm. Uh, and here we are with sponsors pulling out, with fans obviously still upset about it and everything else. To me, it seems like progress. Now, you could say, oh, it's an empty gesture. They had no choice. They're feeling the, the, the pressure financially. They had to do it. They still don't want to do it. Uh, I hear those concerns as well. But I do feel like we're just living in a better world if we can dump that particular team name, aren't we? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I mean, money talks, and that is, make no mistake, that is 100% the reason why Washington's professional football team will be changing its name and retiring its derogatory slur that was its name for decades. And so I think it's obviously a positive for society, and we should also remember that the owner, Dan Snyder, uh, who said that he would never change the name, 
is not doing it because he suddenly had this epiphany of understanding why it is so offensive and deplorable to people across the country and the world, but because it was going to affect his bottom line. That should definitely be noted in this, this discussion. So you're saying he was not part of the Great Awakening? He's, he is, uh, <laughs> no, he is still asleep. <laughs> all right, we have one more serious subject to get to here before a lighter note to close. All right, Michael, we got two emails here. Uh, one from Torsten in Germany. He starts, I'm very confused and frankly disappointed in the wide lack of coverage about the Deshaun Jackson tweets involving anti-Semitic comments, which were kicked off by an Adolf Hitler quote of all things. And I believe that wasn't even an accurate quote, by the way. Um, Torsten continues, it's deeply disturbing to see people do that, let alone other people joining in to defend Deshaun Jackson for his words. The NBA community sadly hasn't been spared from this behavior because household names like uh, Steven Jackson rushed to his defense. It took media as well as other athletes far too long to finally react to it in a critical manner, and I hope this incident sparks the uproar that fits the crime. You guys are some of the more direct and honest hosts within NBA media circles. What's your take on NBA players and personalities defending Jackson's comments or the slow reaction time? And he says, thanks for reading this one, Ben, and shout out to my tinfoil hat hero, Michael Pina. So there you go, Michael, <laughs> tinfoil hat hero. Uh, you're inspiring the masses in Germany. And then real quick, Marty chimes in to say, this was disappointing from Stephen Jackson, and that's an understatement. I am curious if your show will address the, the topic. I sure hope so, because anti-Semitic sentiments are often disregarded. Given how much time you guys rightfully spent on the Black Lives Matter movement, it would be heartening to see some attention placed on these hurtful comments and even address the apparent hypocrisy of Stephen Jackson's position, i.e. he's preaching for equality while at the same time maintaining a blatantly anti-Semitic position. Michael, um, this this obviously was in the news cycle last week. We didn't get to it at that time. Um, you know, so for the for the question about uh, the timing aspect of it, you know, that's on me, guys. I, I felt like there was other things going on um, at that point that uh, were commanding our attention. It was all, also a hectic week just trying to get things together for the Orlando bubble. Um, but I think they both raised good points. This does deserve some level of discussion. Michael, what was your reaction to the entire uh, you know, way things played out. I do believe Steven Jackson has tried to at least clarify or muddy some of his comments. Um, but there were some things that really offended people in there in terms of, you know, references to the Rothschilds and, and other things along those lines. What did you make of it? I mean, it's it was disgusting uh, from Deshaun Jackson's initial post to Steven Jackson defending him, going out of his way to defend him and then doubling down on Instagram Live later on to uh, continue to propagate these divisive, uh, despicable views. Um, I mean... Obviously, anti-Semitism is terrible. There's really no arguing that point. And from my perspective, what I found really disheartening was just how Stephen Jackson, who has become associated with the Black Lives Matter movement because of his relationship with George Floyd, to kind of take that and distract away from it by attacking another marginalized community in this country I just I, I can't even understand where his head was at. And uh, for someone who has such a an, an enormous platform to spread or back such a hurtful message was very disappointing. And I, I thought that, like, initially the coverage of it was pretty low and 
I wasn't relieved that the coverage was low because I think it's not an important issue because it is. I just knew that if it was built up, that it would be very divisive in a way that distracts people from a message and a, uh, a movement that has had a lot of momentum uh, at its back over the past few weeks. It's a very, very sad uh, situation. Uh, it's disappointing. It reminds me of that phrase, it takes a lifetime to build a reputation and a moment to lose it. You know, I think with Steven Jackson, uh, I celebrated him at times on this podcast because he's a player who had just a crazy career arc in terms of, you know, being the quote unquote bad guy for a long time. And here he was seizing his moment uh, through immense personal grief and inspiring hundreds of thousands of people to get in on nationwide protests. All of those things happened. That can uh, that cannot be taken away from him. At the same time, he has damaged his own credibility with those statements to me beyond repair. You know, I think that he will not be booked on ESPN shows or, you know, other platforms like that going forward after making those kinds of comments. They're just too far out there. They're just too indefensible. They're just too hurtful. And this kind of conversation, even like two years ago, I think I generally would have just opted out of completely, Michael, because I would have said, look, come on, it's a wing nuts. You know, mm-hmm. they're just saying nonsense. And I think, unfortunately, again, we've kind of descended here as an American society where um, enough people are at least listening to it or open to it, or there's enough, you know, uh, hor- horrific news. Uh, and noise in the air constantly that it's all just kind of part of our general, um, you know, diet at this point. And that's really, really sad. I mean, to me, you know, in terms of everything you said about the anti-Semitic comments, I lived in Israel when I was in fourth grade. I'm not Jewish, but my family moved there. I remember my first really like experience of learning about the personal toll of the Holocaust was going to a, an ice cream or a gelato shop and seeing uh, you know, an, an elderly man with a, a whole, you know, a, a tattoo uh, with his number on it, not knowing what it was and, and basically out of step, out of turn, asking him what that was and, and kind of prompting, uh, you know, I would say a somewhat awkward response from my parents. Um, you know, those kinds of things. It's like, you know, you think back on moments like that when you're, you know, reading some of these comments and, and just understanding that, like, I mean, there's all sorts of different flavors of deep pain out there throughout history and you know if you do want to be in a leadership position uh, of you know trying to make the world a better place on one issue you've got to be able to you know see things from your fellow man's perspective and he just clearly lost sight of that Um, you know to me uh, it's like I said demoralizing frustrating absolutely I thought those comments needed to be condemned and I think a lot of people you know wound up condemning them it was I think a tough time for for some people to know how to respond because it was so soon after the protests, because he had spoken so uh, powerfully about them, and because he's clearly still grieving, right? And I think that, you know, that aspect, I'm not making any excuses for the comments, but I do think it complicates things somewhat, right? Where uh, I try to have, you know, try to put myself in his head and what's he thinking? And I imagine the pain is still really, really, really deep. And, you know, on that standpoint, I'm, I'm trying to give him, uh, you know, at least uh, at least that. But, 
I, 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 I don't think that he is going to be a, a regular part of these kinds of conversations to the same degree as he was previously. I think that he had a real good shot here, and he blew it, man. And I, I think I, that's how it's going to play. I got to say, I just think that this whole situation brought to the fore for me the importance of education and the importance of history. And I said it on this episode, or not this episode, but a past episode talking about Black Lives Matter and how educating yourself about the history and the plight that black Americans have had in this country would really elucidate to you what is happening today. And it would enlighten you and you would understand better understand why uh, discrimination is going on and racism is racism is still uh, omnipresent in the country. Um, and that also, you know, that spreads to uh, anti-Semitism and the need to really educate yourself because I think Deshaun Jackson's particularly was just extremely ignorant in posting that and really not, you know, you could believe that he really did not understand what he was saying or the message behind it. And so taking a trip to Auschwitz as Ray Allen did for a Players' Tribune piece a little while ago, or as New England Patriots wide receiver Julian Edelman said, like he'll take, he, he invited uh, Deshaun Jackson to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. I think that education is just super important for stuff like this. And it was just really disheartening again to see Steven Jackson propagate like conspiracy theories. And that just tells me he's not at all educated on the topic and should probably stop talking about it. For sure. And I, I do think that like, you know, maybe two or three years ago when we come across those types of people who are just clearly not sure what they're talking about or just, you know, relying on YouTube videos or whatever else, a lot of times those voice wouldn't be elevated because you know, kind of the media masses here in America would just sort of say, eh, we're going to shun you. You know, we're going to keep you on the sidelines on this one. But social media has kind of changed the game. And his uh, his platform was huge right now. And there's a lot of other people out there acting in bad faith, wanting to take those comments and, you know, uh, use it to tear down every other message he's had previously. And I think that, uh, you know, two wrongs don't make a right on that part of it. Okay, Michael, I want to close on a slightly more uplifting note. I'm just going to read your fan mail. How's that sound? Taylor from Idaho writes, you know, it turns out this Michael Pina guy is a full-time starter on open floor. How is he going to hold up sitting next to Ben? Could he counter with equal amounts of sarcasm? Would his basketball analysis score enough points to win the game of podcasting? I'm here to announce the pod has delivered. Michael has been a great addition to open floor since he started in December. That being said, I won't comfort him when his NBA champion predicted Houston Rockets are social distancing their way home after the second round. Michael, the fan mail took a turn (laughs) from Taylor in Idaho. But I want to just back up everything he's saying, man. Uh, You know, being down here just kind of, you know, shook everything up for me. It kind of broke me out of our little quarantine rhythm and routine that we're in. But I so appreciate the perspectives you've been bringing here over the last couple of months. I know our listeners do, too. It was very well put, Taylor. And now go ahead, Michael. Take a bow. You know, go ahead. Uh, th- thank, <laughs> thank the adoring masses. Uh, yeah. No, I'm, this is, I get uncomfortable when I get compliments. But this was very nice of Taylor from Idaho to chime in. And uh, you will be hearing from me, Taylor, when the Rockets are on that championship pedestal. Uh, when the this tournament definitely 
concludes uh, and goes all the way. And that's definitely still going to happen. But also thank you to you, Ben, for the kind words. I really appreciate it. Uh, no doubt at all. All right, man. Uh, we've reached the end of another episode of Open Floor. Guys, if you're enjoying what Michael's bringing to the table, follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Michael V as in Victor Pina. I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golliver on Twitter at Ben Golliver. I'll be honest, guys. My Instagram story is the place to follow this journey step by step. <laughs> I'm over posting the content on there, so be sure to check it out. It's been a lot of fun. I've heard from so many Open Floor Globe members telling me to stay safe and to keep the content coming and everything else like that. I pledge to do my absolute best when I'm down here trying to make the most of a very tricky and strange situation. Guys, email us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review, tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. Also, check out washingtonpost.com slash sports. I've got my Inside the NBA bubble story up already. And if you are not subscribing, consider subscribing. Remember, it was very expensive for the Post to send me down there. I'm able to do these podcasts inside the bubble because of the Washington Post. If you guys would subscribe, that would be amazing. I would appreciate it so much. And by the way, I've got a free newsletter coming out from the Post as well every Monday. This week's was on Rajon Rondo's injury um, and the impacts on you know the Lakers' next steps here as they proceed forward in Orlando. All right, Michael, until later this week when we'll double back with more talk from the bubble quarantine and maybe I'll be crazy at that point after three more days alone in my hotel room, I will talk to you. Talk soon, Ben.